told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to your horror podcast, home of all things sticky, nasty, and full of crap. I'm your host, Jared White, and this is The White Guy Dies First. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Oh, God! Oh, Jesus Christ! What do you want? I want to hear you scream. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Dreams, my friends. Dreams are funny things, and they make for funny movies. And, <laughs> man, do I feel funny right now. I feel like I just came out of a dream after finishing up uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari for the very first time. I feel like I, I need to sort of process what the heck I just saw, because it was surprisingly deep. I didn't think it was going to... Uh, to to sort of hit me with what it did, and it uh, it it gave me a pleasant surprise, and I'm I'm here to sort of work it out uh, live on the podcast right now, um, sort of come to terms with uh, everything that I saw, and uh, mention sort of the the things that I noticed. I'm sure there's a lot of things that I didn't notice. I actually didn't take notes while I was watching this. I kind of just want to, you know, organically explore. Um, my feelings for it because I think that is probably the best way to go for the future because so far all, all of my podcasts I've had very strictly scripted experiences and I think that I need to allow myself to sort of dance outside the box. Um, and speaking of dancing outside the box, this film is very visually interesting. It's going to be really hard for me to describe exactly how stunning this, you know, this film is because it is so heavily reliant on you seeing what's happening. So uh, if you ever get the chance, please, please, please look up this movie and watch it because it is it is a blast. There's a lot of fantastical elements going on. It is not normative at all. Uh, you know, the... Um, the set designs are are quite stunning, and I wonder how much effort went into it. I'll bet you most of the budget went into creating these sets because there's so many of them. I mean, there's a few times where you know we'll go back to some familiar places, but for the most part, there's a bunch of places that you only see one time, and it's so highly detailed, and there's this forced perspective going on a lot of the time, or there'll be buildings that are shorter, or, or sloping rooftops, or slanted doorways, or painted walls, or, or like stuff on the floor, like these painted spikes that are supposed to look like streetlight lamps. Streetlight lamps, that's kind of hard to say. Um, so this, I just have to say right off the bat, if you're looking for a, a fantastic German expressionist film, please watch this film. I know sort of the big two are Cabinet of Caligari and Nosferatu. I can't think of another one off the top of my head, but this rightly and justifiably earns its spot as one of the most visually interesting films of the early uh, film period because it is just, it is a joy to watch. It it really is. There's only a, there's like a few scenes where like, like for example, somebody gets jailed at one point and you only get one shot of the person in the jail. And I thought to myself, wow, they had to probably spend like a whole day getting the walls painted and getting everything just right to have this like 20 second little shot. And uh, that dedication really impresses me. It really, really does. So a little bit more background about this film. It was released in Germany uh, for, <laughs> for about a budget of 12,371 bucks. 
I don't exactly know the conversion on that. I don't know how much $12,000 in 1920s cash was, but I would presume it was probably about $100,000 today. Whatever it was, unfortunately, it did not make back even half of the the budget because its box office um, numbers is at about $4,700, so well short of even half. Um, But it went on to be a very historically important film, and... Now it's in the public domain, and we can watch it any old place. And uh, I was watching it on, uh, well, I won't say, I won't uh, <laughs> I won't advertise for a free streaming service. No, 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 you're going to have to, to pay me the big bucks to name drop. Um, but I was watching it, and there were ad, ad breaks uh, sprinkled through. And I have to say, it is very jarring, very, very jarring to uh to cut from 1920s film stock to super HD hyper color loud you know commercial for um for car insurance or whatever and uh you know I I intentionally sort of did that thing I watched it on my television rather than on my computer where I've got ad blockers and such but I watched it on the TV uh just in my bed and I actually think that was a really good idea because this is a very you know sleep-centric film. It's very sleepy and comfortable, and I almost, you know, fell asleep once or twice because, again, the music is so soothing. It's dreamlike. It's, uh, it's, it's very comfortable. It's a slow movie. Very slow. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it is at an appropriate amount of time. It's about 106 minutes, or, I'm sorry, an hour and six minutes. Um, it's actually only 74 minutes, uh, the runtime. Uh, which isn't very long, and I feel like at times it drags a little bit, but the overall story is is worth it. Um, so, uh, let's see. It, oh, oh, that's the other thing. I'm, I'm kind of bumbling here, uh, but I wanted to say, really important, that this film is almost 101 years old. Uh, it was released uh, February 26, 1920, so a few short weeks from now, it'll be at its 101st birthday. And, uh, you know, I think that lends it a whole deeper sort of uh, meaning and uh, nuance than it had when it was originally released. Because here I am watching it a hundred years later, and I'm looking at this film, and I'm realizing that every single person in this film is dead. Like, long dead. Like, (laughs) really long-term dead. And uh, I look at specifically all the extras that are invited in uh, to be just background characters, uh, stuff like uh, they go to the fair at one point and there's just a bunch of, you know, women all you know, uh, gathered around like this organ grinder monkey thing. And I can bet you those people were paid pennies, if not just like a free meal. You know, hey, come on, we're making this movie. I just want you to walk by a couple times, be filler for us. And I wonder what those people's lives were like. You know, it's really like looking into another world, another completely different time that we have no relation to at all. And uh, and yet, we're bound by the similar sort of interest in film. And I think that's fascinating to realize that, you know, these people who share very little in common with us these days are bound through this same artistic medium, you know. So it it really makes you wonder, it casts a light on sort of the things that you're doing right now. What are you doing in life that, you know, maybe it'll be preserved and looked at a hundred years from now <laughs> in a film, or not in a film, in a media that you can't even imagine? Like, try explaining a podcast to uh, to somebody way back then. It's like radio, but on this thing called the internet, and I don't even want to get into what the internet is. So can you just try to think for a moment how 
different things are going to be in a hundred years and where things are going to be and who, what people are going to be like, what our children's children's children are going to be thinking and doing and feeling. And will the things that we think and do and feel resonate with them as much as this film does to us? Um, so, you know, it's another layer. And I get that you could kind of do this with any movie, but I think because it's a silent film, uh, I think it resonates uh, that feeling a little bit more. Like when I was watching White Zombie, you know, that's 1932. That's 12 years after this. It's got sound. It's got, you know, decent camera um, camera uh, resolution, film resolution, rather. Uh, it feels like something that maybe could have been made like 1950s, possibly early 40s. Uh, somewhat closer to what we think, but 1920, I mean, come on, that's like post-World War One. That's my, might actually be mid-World War One. I. I actually can't remember when exactly World War One ended. Uh, ended, I just want to double check. Wow, hey, it's me. I'm doing a little bit of post-editing here. I want to come back and reconfirm a few things and say them a little bit more elegantly. Uh, basically, yeah, the um, the ending of World War One officially happened November 11th, uh, 1918. I don't know why I seem to have thought that the conflict continued into 1920, but it did, and uh, about a year, a year and a half uh, before this film was released. So it is very easy to say that the, the events of the war and the tragedies of that horrible conflict was very much on the filmmakers' minds. And uh, I did also read that the uh, the filmmakers were basically turning to pacifists uh, in the post-environment uh, of the war. And this is sort of their way of working through the war trauma. And, um, you know, Caesar, I'll go on to talk about Caesar in a little bit, but Caesar the Sleeping Man is sort of this allegory for the public who was puppeteered by this government that didn't really care about them. That was just sort of flexing its, its uh, control over them and... Um, that really gives the film a whole deeper meaning. And I think it's a, it's a really important thing to talk about because nobody ever really speaks about the atrocities that happened in World War One. Everyone tends to focus on World War Two, and justly so. The, uh, the, tra the atrocities, uh, committed in World War Two, uh, you know, greatly outshine or out smudge the, the, um, the reputation and the, the basically the belief in the common good almost you know you think about everything that happened during those turbulent two century or two um decades um the 1930s well actually i guess it would be three no four so it'd be like the 1910s the 20s 30s and 40s god yikes so um you know those those years it's no wonder that people were cynical and expressing themselves in this sort of gothic sort of uh, style and believing that you know, humanity is kind of in a weird way because it treats itself so horribly and subjects its uh, its its people to such fucking awful shit. You know, how can how can we really feel sympathy for anybody? You know, aren't we all sort of victims here? Aren't we all being victimized by the people who would just brutalize us all the time? We are in the control of the Caligaris and. Um, we are the collective Caesar. You're either the Caesar or you're the um, you're the Jane or the uh, Francis. I'll go on to talk about them, but I just want to come back and say that uh, there's a lot more nuance and a lot more um, introspective stuff going on with the World War One stuff uh, that is actually, you know, really 
invocative of what would eventually come to happen in uh, World War II, because Caligari himself is like this charismatic, controlling, maniacal, sinister figure. And obviously, World War II had a lot of those, not just on the German side, but uh, pretty pretty much every country had their own sort of controlling, influencing person. But anyway, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys get back to the review. I'll get back to the podcast. Uh, okay, bye-bye. So anyway, what is the actual film about? Well, it starts off with two gentlemen sitting in a shadowy park. Uh, It kind of looks like it's in the woods or something. They're sitting on like a bench. And the older man says like, ooh, the spirits are active today. They've driven away, uh, driven me away from my home, my family, (laughs) my wife and children. And I don't know what the hell that means. Um, it, it is ominous as hell and it does set the mood and the younger guy just sort of says, yeah, they're, they're kind of all over the place right now. And then look, there's one of them now sort of thing. Um, and this girl walks by, I think her name's Jane and, uh, the, the younger man, his name's Francis says, that's my fiance. And she's obviously in some sort of trance again, it, this movie is so centered around dreams and sleepwalking and, and sort of what, what is reality? And I think that's that's amazing that they're discussing this at such an early junction in the horror movie uh, genre. So anyway, Francis starts telling the story of sort of what happened, what strange things befell him and his fiance. And he tells the story of him and his friend, Alan, who go to the, the this, this like fair that's come to this their little hometown of, I think I'm saying this right, Holst, Holstenwall, Holstenwall, I believe. Um the fair has come to town and it's a big deal because, you know, this isn't like nowadays where you could just go to Disneyland any old time. The fair is coming once a year. And when it comes, you better go. Um, and then it cuts to this older man, the titular uh, Dr. Caligari, who's played by Werner Krauss. Krauss. Uh, I'm just seeing the names right here. And he's really good, I have to say, as as sort of this like scheming older man with these big round Coke bottle glasses and mean top hat. He's got the he's got the wonderful like sloping back and his and his big cape and his cane. You know, he's he's great. I really love his expressions on that. He's he's just so bitter and old, and you can tell yeah, he's great. Um and he goes to the town clerk, and the town clerk is, uh, I think I might have mentioned this, he's sitting on, like, a really tall chair. Maybe I didn't mention this, but again, this film plays with our perspective of sort of what's normal. Like, the town clerk is sitting on this, this like, big stool that's, like, four feet tall. And uh, the, the clerk's, like, really pissed off. <laughs> I don't really know why they, they do this little gag where Caligari keeps, like, pestering him, like, hey, can I talk to you? And the guy keeps going, wait, we'll sit down. And, uh... <laughs> It, it kind of goes nowhere. Um, and uh, Caligari eventually finally gets to, to talk to him. And the guy goes, okay, what's going on? And, the, uh, and Caligari says, okay, look, I want to I wanna set up a cabinet. I want to set up a sideshow at the carnival, or the fair, rather. And uh, the guy says, okay, fine. What, uh, what do you want to present? And he says, I'm going to present a somnambulist. I think I'm saying that right, somnambulist. And I had to look up what a somnambulist is. Uh, apparently, it is somebody who has trouble sleeping, or actually, I'm going to look up. It is a phenomenon uh, of combined sleep and wakefulness. It is classified as a sleep disorder belonging to the parasom- parasomnia family. It occurs during slow wave sleep stage in a state of low consciousness. So it's essentially sleepwalking, but it also has something to do with like narcolepsy and just generally not being able to rouse yourself very well. Um, and the somnambulist uh, in question is this guy named Caesar. Caesar. 
uh, played by Conroyd Veit, Veit. And uh, Conroyd Veit is actually, I think, the strongest actor in this whole thing because he's got some expression going on. They, like, black his eyes a little bit. Like, they put uh, makeup around his face. A lot of the time, he's just sleeping in a box. But uh, there's a few very interesting scenes where he wakes up and his eyes are huge. They're super expression, ex- full of expression. And I think they cast him perfectly. Um, and so Caligari gets his approval and, uh, they say, okay, fine. Oh yeah, that's why, that's why the clerk was rude. I forgot about this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it just clicked with me. Uh, when he does get approved to, uh, to have the somnambulist, uh, shown in the fair that night, uh, the, the, the clerk is murdered mysteriously by somebody. Uh, and you go, oh, I bet you it was Caligari cause he was rude to, he was rude to Caligari. Oh, and, uh, then, uh, Francis, by the way, Francis is played by this guy called Friedrich Fayer. Fayer, I believe. The, the One of the E's has an accent over it, so I do apologize if I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> so him and his friend Alan go to the fair. They they see uh, Caligari's spectacle. They see that uh, Caesar is sort of this semi-crystal ball sort of thing. Um, Caligari says that that Caesar hasn't fully awoken in 25 years, and he can he can uh, put out prophecy. You know, ask him anything, and uh, and he'll tell you. And his uh, Francis's friend Alan says, "Oh, I want to know. I want to know." And he asks him obviously the best question you could ever ask any sort of fortune teller or magical sort of property. He says, "When will I die?" <laughs> I don't think I want to know. Like that's. Why would you ever ask a question like that? That is a loaded question if ever there was one. Oh, man. And uh, Caesar, with a big, weird expression, big, scary expression on his face, says, Your time is short. You die at dawn. And then later, a figure breaks into Alan's home and stabs him to death. Um, And I, I kind of can't tell if it's if it's Caesar or not, because the, the shadow play uh, does sort of leave things a little bit nebulous, but it is... Uh, very aggressive, and uh, it, it actually does sort of make, it made me go, oh shit, like, wow, they are really going all out on this, um, and then eventually another another stabbing almost happens, uh, this other guy gets picked up, uh, and they accuse him, like, oh, this guy must be the killer at large, and uh, actually, I've completely jumped over the part where, uh, sorry, <laughs> Alan and Francis uh, were actually both courting Jane, uh, the the girl in the beginning of the movie that uh, Francis said was his fiance, and uh, there was this little moment where where Francis said to Alan, you know, you know, whoever she picks, I I still want us to be friends, and uh, clearly, <laughs> poor Alan doesn't get to get his shot, get his uh, get his best effort in there, and you know, I have to give credit to this movie because when um when Francis delivers the news to Jane, they are both visibly shaken up, and this is another point where the, the German expressionist thing really comes into its own and really shines because their expressions of grief are very real. You know, they're shocked as hell. They're upset. They're screaming. They're wailing. They're they're pulling at their hair. They're um they are vis- vis- visibly upset, but not in a way that's so exaggerated that be- it becomes cartoonish. It's I found it very believable, and uh, I, I think that it's it's very, you know, there's a fine line between emoting so much that it becomes parody and emoting as people actually would. Like, we tend to think of grief as a very sort of, you know, thing that makes you curl in on yourself, you know, you sort of crumble. Uh, but I, I like that this was more of an explosive sort of like, like, no, no. Uh, so good for them. 
And then it's it, it's eventually revealed that the the man who almost uh, stabbed this old lady, uh, he was trying to kill this old woman, but he he was using the um, the two previous murders as sort of this excuse. Like if uh, like if he killed the old lady, the, then his murder would be attributed to whoever killed the first two people. He doesn't know who did it, but uh, but it, it it's implied to be Caesar and. Uh, Francis goes and watches Caligari. Caligari's got this like little weird shack set up, um, this really tiny like one room apartment, and all it has in it is like a chair, a small table, and Caesar's coffin that he sleeps in. And there's this sort of like sweet moment where Caligari like he has Caesar like sit up and he feeds him like some porridge or something. Um, it's really weird. It's I kind of feel like I feel like Caligari does care about Caesar a little bit. But not that much. It there, but there's something there. Um, so anyway, uh, Francis watches Caligari uh, sit next to Caesar all night. Meanwhile, a figure that's gotta be Caesar sneaks into Jane's room while she sleeps, and he's gonna go stab her. But then he like sort of has this like break. You could see it in his face where sort of some humanity or something's breaking through. Something's changing in him. And rather than stab her, he sort of like puts his hand like near her face. And she wakes up and freaks the fuck out because, God, he he pulls some really scary faces. I don't know if they've blacked out his teeth or whatever, but his 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 grimace of like trying to smile is actually quite disturbing. Um, And he kidnaps her. He runs away and... <laughs> he climbs out of the rooftops and and you know absconds with her and I think her father her father and her, her couple of brothers like chase after and uh, eventually they actually catch up with them in like the forest <laughs> and for some reason like Caesar after after dumping Jane on the ground basically and running away I think it's maybe because he's caught out in the daylight or something he like he like collapses he collapses and just sort of dies on the roadside and um Maybe it's just because he exerted himself too much. And uh, meanwhile, Francis has been watching the whole the whole uh, uh, sort of performance that Caligari's putting in with uh, with Caesar in the box. And uh, when when Jane confesses or when Jane tells her story, like, hey, man, like Caesar was Caesar, like picked me up and stole me away. Uh, Francis goes, no way that couldn't happen. I was watching him all night. And they go to the police station, they go to Caligari's, and Caligari sort of sneaks away while they're looking in his <laughs> in his little shit shit shack. And uh when they pull <laughs> they pull um Caesar out of the box, it's a fake it's a dummy. <laughs> so oh no, he was he was playing the long game on this. And now we get into some really weird stuff, uh, because at this point, when Caligari escapes, Francis goes to an, an insane asylum and says, well, maybe Caligari uh, came from this place. Can you go check up to see if any of the patients are missing? And um, the doctors keep coming back like, no, you know, nobody's missing and we can't, we don't have a Caligari here. Uh, but if you want to talk to uh, to the director of the asylum, then maybe we can, you know, give you a, a better tour and you can look at the patients and try to identify what's going on. And much to Francis's shock, the guy who, like, the guy who's running the asylum is Caligari. He's the guy who's been uh, pretending to be Caligari. And uh, eventually it's uncovered that the director of the the insane asylum has, like, these ancient books from, like, the, the like the 11th century detailing this, this sort of figure named Caligari and his somnambulist Caesar. And basically what I believe happened is the insane asylum director... Um, 
sort of got his hands on these books and wanted to to recreate that that story and and see if he could get his hands on his own somnambulist and commit murders and uh, get access to power. And this is what I this is what I meant by like this might be a metaphor for post-war Germany because I I have heard that like or at least on the Wikipedia page I've read that uh, supposedly, you know, the the insane asylum director is the charismatic leader that the Germans want and the sleeping Caesar is the common man who's just waiting to be told what to do. They need an authoritarian figurehead like uh, Caligari to tell them what's what's going on and will push them into uh, into murdering things. And considering that World War II happened later and, uh, you know, a charismatic leader came and fucked everything up and threw them into war again uh, is very on the nose. Um, but then again, this is where it gets really weird because it's it's implied that, like, the insane asylum director was like adopting the name Caligari. So this would be like if somebody like wanted to call themselves Dracula and and pretended to be the actual Dracula. I don't fully understand. Like I get he's kind of crazy. Um, how, by the way, I have to say this whole this whole reveal of Caligari's the quote unquote Caligari's plan is very not, like handled sloppily. Um, because it's shown through diary entries, and my god, these diary entries are really, really hard to read. Like, I actually had to pause and get really close up, because it's, the lighting just blurs it all out, and it's in handwritten sort of script, and I couldn't read it hardly at all. I think I picked up enough um, text to kind of piece it together, but uh, that is that is one area where the film really stumbles, is is revealing the big... Uh, revelation of, oh my god, the Insane Asylum director's crazy, um, and this whole time he's been looking for a somnambulist to name, to find his Caesar, you know, uh, this would be like, again, I guess a better example would be, this is, um, this is somebody naming themselves Dr. Frankenstein and wants to find an Elizabeth, you know, they want to find Mrs. Frankenstein, um, that's kind of a sloppy sort of analogy, but you get what I mean, um, and they do a flashback to when, uh, Caesar was brought in basically in like a wheelbarrow, and uh, the doctor's like, yes, finally, now I will be able to commit the murders. <laughs> and they take all of this to the police, and, uh, or no, they don't take it to the police, they just pretty much like, <laughs> uh, put Caligari in a straitjacket, right, right, uh, right there, right then and there. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One more thing I wanted to bring up, because this was amazing, is um, when when the Insane Asylum director is sort of struggling with whether or not he should go through with this Caligari thing, uh, adopt this persona, um, he's walking home through the woods, and he sort of sees in the sky written Caligari, and he turns away from it, and he tries to hide his face, and then all around him are these, are, are these titles, like Caligari, Caligari, everywhere. It's written... Uh, so well that it's I don't know what exactly they did with this with this film stock or how they got this effect going on but seeing the name appear everywhere is really awesome and I think it's it's probably the best scene in the whole movie uh, because I just have no idea how they did that and it's so effective to show how oppressive and intimidating and overwhelming this Caligari persona is and how it was um, basically like absorbed him um, it's definitely the best part and then Immediately after, that's when they put uh, Caligari into a straitjacket, and uh, then we cut back to the beginning opening shot of the movie of Francis sitting on the bench with the old man, and uh, then 
gets really, really, really weird because Francis goes back to the front entrance of the insane asylum and he sees Jane and Caesar there sort of just like, like standing around in the courtyard and Caesar's like leaning against the wall, sort of like picking at a flower and Jane sitting like just staring out into nowhere. And, and Francis goes, you know, Hey, you know, when are we going to get married eventually? Like finally, when are we going to get married? And she says this really weird thing. She's like, you know, we of royal blood do not get to decide, or do not get to follow our hearts and tents or something. Um, I I don't quite understand what's happening there. And then, dun-dun-dun, Caligari himself comes out again, looking a little bit more cleaned up. And uh, and Francis goes, oh my god, what are you guys doing? Why'd you let him out? He, this man spells our doom. And then Francis himself is brought into the asylum and restrained in a straitjacket. And uh, the director says, mm, now that I understand his condition, I can cure him. Like, he believes I'm Caligari. And then the film ends. So I've got a few interpretations of this of this odd, perplexing ending. Um, I guess the most obvious would be that Francis was crazy the entire time. He is uh, probably the first example of an unreliable narrator. You know, this this entire thing that we've been hearing, the whole story has been his perspective that he's been telling the stranger. And if that's the case, then this is a groundbreaking film uh, for having an unreliable narrator uh, to show us visually what's happening. Um, and, and, you know, that sort of interpretation is so backed up by the by the dreamlike and twisted sets. You know, are we just seeing uh, the, per- the perspective of a madman? Uh, and that's why everything looks so fantastical and strange. Although, I have to say, one of the things that I found uh, to be, you know, a possible interpretation that I actually really like is that potentially... Uh, the the man known as Caligari has sort of cast a spell over everyone. He's he's managed to um, use his sort of knowledge of the human mind to trick everyone into being essentially his puppets. Uh, you know, he's still got Caesar, he's got Francis, he's got Jane. They're all under his influence, and I and I think that um, you know Francis maybe broke free a little bit and was in the in the garden with this other older man. But I suppose another. Third interpretation is just that they are all crazy, that the man he was talking to when he said the whole, oh, you know, the spirits drove me away. You know, where are they? They look like they're in a park or something, but maybe this is just the insane asylum's sort of recreational area. Maybe Caesar and Jane and all of them are just like, you know, goofballs, basically. They're all mentally not there. And that's why Jane says that really weird thing about being a queen. Uh, I don't really know, but I like that I don't know because it it lends an air of interpretation to it. And I think that showing this to people, uh, I think, unfortunately, some people are just going to, like, you know, cross their arms and say, I didn't get it. Like, that seems stupid. <laughs> like, good thing we move beyond that sort of crappy filmmaking. And I think that'd be doing a great disservice to this. I think this film is a lot more clever than uh, than I than people give it credit for. Um so it's not just, hey, look, you know, the sets are fantastical, the the villain is sort of sinister, he's an archetypal sort of figure. Um, I think it all comes together at the end there to explain itself, uh, you know, me- messing with the perception of not just Francis, but also us as the viewer of the movie. Um, and, you know, I, I really admire the guts that it took to do that, to take that sort of risk. Um and and I think that 
overall, this is like a super quality movie for, I mean, I don't want to just say for the time. For right now, this was, yes, a little slow, and I kind of had to, you know, rouse myself a couple times. But isn't that sort of like what the characters themselves are doing throughout the film? They're trying to sort of establish what reality is. Who's the murderer? That's another thing, is it gives you the good fake out of thinking, oh, well, that guy who tried to kill the old lady, he's probably doing it. Are we really even seeing Caesar do this? And even when, you know, we're presented with Caesar accosting Jane in her bedroom, you know, we are shown... Caesar in the box with Caligari because Francis is looking at it. So that also lends another layer of confusion because you're like, wait a minute, you know, am I seeing Caesar's take her away or is something else happening? Are there two? That's what I thought. I thought maybe there's like an awake version who can't get to sleep and there's another one who is always asleep. Um, So it's it's actually really awesome. <laughs> I love this film. It's uh, I think I would watch it again and again because it's... Um, you know, it goes through these these different mood changes that are so abrupt. You know, you go from the fun of the carnival or the fair uh, into Caligari's sort of, you know, uh, expose of wonder and the dread of seeing whatever whatever the heck Caesar actually is and what he can do. And uh, is he actually a prophet? It, w- did he say that just because, you know, hey, you asked me the question, I'm going to freaking kill you later. You and me, we got a little date in the morning. Um and why necessarily does Caligari even want to murder people? Is it just like his dream to kill people? Does he just want to sort of, you know, express his own his own power over others? I mean, he already has power over Caesar. Uh, Caesar's his, uh, well, I don't want to say his Frankenstein, because Frankenstein's monster is uh, an uncontrollable monster who goes against the wishes of his uh, of his creator and arguably, like, dismisses his creator entirely and even goes beyond... Um, Dr. Frankenstein's uh, limited perspective of the world because, man, I could say so much about Frankenstein, but I'll limit it there and just say that uh, Caligari, uh, you know, it's actually really funny, is Caligari uses Caesar much like uh, the murderer guy, uh, um, the guy uh, uh, who was played by uh, Bela Lugosi in White Zombie, in much the same way that Lugosi ordered around his zombies that is extraordinarily similar to how Caligari orders around Caesar. And um, and I think that's that's sort of, that's really awesome. That's really awesome how we're getting, I don't want to call Caesar a zombie, uh, but he is very similar to that. You know, he's controlled by this older, studious man who has knowledge of an art that maybe, you know, should be forbidden. So I, it was really good. I, um, I, do, I can see how people would be put off by it. Uh, I know some people who refuse to even watch black and white movies, let alone silent films. Um, but I, I think the only true problem with this movie is that the uh, journal text uh, in in Caligari's journal explaining why exactly he's doing everything is so blurry and so difficult to read uh, that that did kind of hurt my enjoyment of the movie. Um, but I, I think that it's it's great. I would I would give this like God, like I'd probably give this like a nine out of ten. Really though, it's it's awesome. It's really cool. I think that it's it's a perfect time capsule sort of thing. It's it's a moment where it's a moment in time that's never happening again, and we'll never go back to this sort of thing. You know, you could say that that's sort of true of everything pre nineteen ten, but uh, this sort of is that weird transitionary period between, you know, the industrial revolution and modern society. So, I I really love it. 
I think it was awesome. It's, it was a lot more violent than I thought it was going to be. I mean, yes, you know, there's no explicit stabbing or strangling. It's all off camera. It's all suggested, but um, no, it was good. It was a little tiny bit long, but uh, but I think that it still works. It tells the story it needs to, and I, I really, really respect it for that. Um, so yeah, that's all I got for today. Uh, this was the White Guy Dies First podcast. In this case, I believe... Yeah, yeah, the white guy did die uh, first this time because it was uh, it was the clerk. <laughs> it was that rude clerk that everybody wants to kill. Everybody hates those rude clerks, uh, essentially like the uh, like the DMV people who put you on hold forever and ever. And clearly, they're being uh, you know harassed by other people. Like, hey, I want my I want my driver's license. No, I want my permit. No, I want this. Blah, 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 blah. And you're just there in the background, like, oh, can I talk? Wait a moment, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's that tension of the public office that uh, that gets emotions real high, and you better be careful out there, folks, because uh, you never know when some weirdo Caligari wannabe is going to sick his Caesar on you. Woof. So, um, yeah, this was awesome. This was really cool. Uh, if you want to tell me what I should talk about next time, then please, again, follow me at JaredWhite7 uh, at Twitter. I'll put the link in the description of this uh, audio podcast thing. So anyway, guys, this has been Jared White, and I'll see you in the next one. Ta-ta for now, everybody. See you later. Stan, don't you think you were well, a little hard on him? You see that crap? All that horror crap? Things coming out of crates and eating people? Dead people coming back to life? People turning into weeds, for Christ's sake? Well, yes, I did, but I... Well, you want him reading that stuff? Well, no, but... All right, then. I took care of it. That's why God made fathers, babe. That's why God made fathers.